0: Hi, this is Crude Axe, Murder in an Old Town. I'm Jen Schaefer. In our last episode, we talked about the murder of a young girl named Carolyn Hahn, whose life was cut short in September 1985. We're moving forward to our next case that happened a few months later in that same year, what I call a year without a conscience. When I was a kid, I was confused and a little upset that my dad wouldn't let us have our phone number listed in the phone book or have our birthdays announced in the local newspaper, the Baytown Sun. He monitored everything we did. I felt like my brother Marshall and I had more rules than the rest of our friends did, more restrictions, and it really annoyed me to all get out. I thought it was just one of the joys of being a cop's (laughs) kid—more rules, less fun. But things became a little clearer as to why after what happened on Halloween, nineteen eighty-five. It came and went like any other Halloween night. I was nine years old at the time. Yes, I'm aging myself, and. Honestly, I can't remember what I went as, but I do remember that the boy I had a crush on went as Indiana Jones. To be honest, I probably also wanted to go as Indiana Jones. Back then, our biggest fear on Halloween was forgetting to inspect our candy before eating it because urban legend had it that bad people stuck razor blades in the chocolate bars and kids died from eating them. Or, you know, maybe another fear was running into a real ghost or witch or, you know, something like that. Candy, fantasy, fright. A kid's Halloween dream is to get hopped up on sugar and to be frightened by ghouls and goblins and witches and ghosts and fictitious boogeymen, then circle the streets asking for tricks or treats or both, all in the name of fun. But on that Halloween night in 85, we all discover what happens to unsuspecting girls when a real life boogeyman introduces you to what real fear is, and it's anything but fun. A few years ago, my dad was asked to contribute to, on the case with Paula Zahn, episode called Deadly Riddles that would appear on the ID network. He was one of the detectives who worked on this murder case that I'm about to tell you about, and the show did an amazing job unfolding the events of what happened in this case. Paula Zahn interviewed family members with such grace and ease. I highly encourage you to watch it. This podcast comes from what I remember— researched, and heard from my dad's recollection. It's a chilling case that is shocking and gruesome. Moreover, when you find out the person who was behind it, you will not only have chills, but more questions as to how and why that day innocence was lost in more ways than one. So here it is, without further ado, Episode 2, The Murder Case of Mary Styles a murder told in three acts. Act 1. It's 4 p.m., the early part of Halloween night. 11-year-old Mary Stiles asked her dad Gary if she could go down to the main office of their apartment complex. Inside the office, they propped up a fake coffin that they filled to the top with candy for kids, and little Mary wanted to secure her share. Gary said yes, Without a second thought, the complex was always doing fun things like that for the kids. So Mary, dressed up in pink Care Bear pajamas, her blonde hair pulled back in blonde ringlet pigtails, went off with some friends to embark upon the beginning of a night of fun and trick-or-treating. Nightfall quickly came. The clock ticked and talked, getting later and later with each click, and there was no sign of Mary. Mary and as darkness settled, panic began to arise. When it was finally dinner time and Mary still didn't show, older sister Carrie and father Gary decided to go out and look for the little girl. They searched for hours, and when they came up empty, they knew what they had to do. It was time to call 911. Police showed up and immediately began their search for the little girl. If foul play was involved, they knew it was a race against the clock. They used every resource at their disposal, hit every door of the apartment complex, stopped and searched every car going in and out. They checked all the usual and unusual places, nothing. They retraced Mary's steps of the day. The office folks remembered her popping in to grab some candy, but not where she went off to afterwards. Her friends didn't remember her going off with anyone. Mary Stiles had just simply disappeared. Days passed and everyone continued their search. Police looked into the usual suspects in any murder case, ruled out the family and friends, and then pedophiles and sex offenders who lived in the area. They came up empty at every turn, not one single clue. Poor Gary Styles stayed up all day and all night waiting for news, and after days of hearing nothing, he decided, along with the rest of his family, including his wife and Mary's stepmother, to hold a press conference. Their thoughts were to turn to the media to get the word out and plea with her possible abductors to let her go. Mary's birth mother even joined in and made her own plea. She just found out she had cancer. She needed Mary to be with her. After their appearance on television, Baytown police were flooded with calls and tips, hundreds upon hundreds of them. People claimed to see Mary in various places all over Texas, in various towns, with various people. Police checked out every single one of those leads, but none of them produced any results. All the leads led to a dead end. Things would take a drastic turn when a strange letter arrived at the Baytown police station. On the outside of the envelope, the letter stated, URGENT MARY STYLES IMMEDIATE in all caps, in handwriting that looked like what a friend of mine called Metallica font. Detectives opened the letter carefully, and inside the envelope was a folded piece of paper that when opened up exposed a crudely drawn map that said, among other things, this is where you'll find Mary's body. A trail and an X was drawn out to a wooded area a few hundred yards away from the apartment complex. Police, following every clue, decided to take the letter at its word and immediately headed out to the complex to follow the directions on the map. Just as it stated, the trail drawn on the map led them out into the woods about a couple hundred yards or so behind the apartment complex. And in the woods was the big tree, besides another fallen tree, A -a peekaboo of baby pink showed from beneath the debris of branches and leaves. After police moved the debris aside, they finally found her, where the map said she would be. Her little body, exposed to the elements for nine days, was in a fetal position. Her pajamas pulled down around her waist, exposing her torso. She was stabbed in the neck several times and had strangulation marks. She had been brutally murdered. Detectives described the scene as horrifying. Her last moments alive were scary and gruesome. Her defensive wounds on her hands showed she put up a fight and tried desperately to get away from the person who viciously attacked her, and she lost. Police knew they had to inform her family of the discovery. Investigative journalist Paula Zahn talked to some members of the Stiles family, Mary's father, Gary, informed her that very same day he and his family were returning home from Galveston, a nearby beach town. He had taken the family out there to get away from the media frenzy and to experience some normalcy. Though the trip wasn't your typical fun family trip, because everyone was worried and missing Mary. On their way back home, the family stopped at a convenience store. And inside the store the clerk was removing a missing persons flyer of Mary out of the window when asked why he was doing that he said to them without knowing who they were that no need to have it up anymore they had found her they rushed home and called police immediately and got the news that they dreaded to hear Mary had been found but sadly she had also been murdered they went into a state of shock Heartbreak ensued, and anger quickly followed. Who could have done such a thing to their sweet little innocent girl? As the missing person's case closed and the homicide case opened, all of us in Baytown, our quiet oil town near the bustling town of Houston, became restless and scared. Our collective fear hung onto the thick air like meat hooks. Evil had moved in and had found itself a home. You could feel its looming presence you could practically see its hot breath filling up in the cold, dark corners of the shadows. But what you'll find out next is who that hot breath belonged to was someone that no one, including law enforcement, could have ever imagined. Act two. The only answer producing clue Baytown detectives had to go on in the murder case of 11-year-old Mary Stiles was an ominous letter sent to them via mail with a crudely drawn map inside that led them to her lifeless body. Autopsy showed she had died from four stab wounds to the neck, strangulation, and suffocation. Someone had murdered her in a monstrous way. The community was frightened, her family was devastated, and police were baffled. They didn't find any clues at the site to lead them to any suspect, just that single letter. The news of Mary Styles' murder quickly made its way to the local paper, then Houston papers, and then Houston News. For a good chunk of time, it seemed as if Mary Styles' face was everywhere you looked. Her name was mentioned everywhere you went. Parents talked about her. Teachers talked about her. Even us kids on the playground talked about her. Someone always either knew who she was personally or knew someone that went to school with her or knew someone who knew her mom or her dad or her sister or her brothers. Someone always knew. Small town talk. I remember not being allowed to go outside and play for a good while. My own house off Adu Drive near my school, Lamar Elementary, was close to the apartment complex where Mary lived. Things in my neighborhood were just quiet. Eerie quiet. Sad quiet. What was on everyone's mind? Who did this awful crime and why? And more importantly, would they strike again? And if so, when? We were all collectively holding our breaths, waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for something bad to happen. What we didn't know is that local police had already started gathering information to answer those very questions, questions about the monster hiding in the shadows. The monster provided them with a letter and a map that led them to her body. At the time, it was all they had to go on for the profile. The killer appeared to possibly have mental issues. There were lots of misspellings and the letter was very rudimentary. It was postmarked in Baytown, but no prints matched their database. So police sent the letter to the FBI for analysis for them to help create a profile of who they thought was the suspect. The case was at a standstill, but only for a short time until another break sprang them back into action. A second letter arrived in the mail. Same handwriting as before, same envelope, no return address, Inside was a confession by someone calling himself the, quote, madman. It continued to talk of his need to surrender, his need for judgment, that, quote, the pain is more than I can stand, the pain of remembering and of hiding what I had done from myself and from the persons around me, end quote. Was this for real? Was this a man confessing his emotions after committing a horrible crime? Did he have regret? Or was this a mentally unstable person who wavered from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde that could easily flip and commit yet another murder? For answers, they also sent this letter to FBI. And if that wasn't enough, catch this. Another letter shortly arrived. Yet, it seemed like Mr. Hyde had taken over. This letter had a different tone, more anger, and even more pompous. The letter presented a challenge to detectives the beginning of a game of cat and mouse. The killer said he would send clues in the form of riddles that detectives needed to answer to unveil his identity. This is what it said. You will be given three trial questions to get you on the right track. All your answers must be printed in the Baytown Sun. If they do not appear, then the price will be paid. So. Police could only assume that the price they'd have to pay was another innocent life, and that they were potentially dealing with what could be a serial killer in the making, and the timer had been set to stop him. The game begins now, the madman stated in his letter, and his question to them was this. This was his riddle. This time has passed from long ago, but a name remains. The name of the wearer of the Heart against the Truth of the Feather. So now, Baytown police had to embark on a deadly game of Jeopardy with a dangerous killer making up the rules as he goes. If they were to get the answer wrong, someone may very well lose their life, just like young Mary Styles. Research led detectives to realize the question was from ancient Egypt text and was about a god of the afterlife— This god was in charge of manning the weighing scale in the afterlife that determined whether a soul would be allowed to enter the realm of the dead. Egyptians believed that a person's heart recorded all their good and bad deeds, and afterlife judgment was pitting it against the wear of the feather of mat. I think it's mat, (laughs) M-A-A-T, goddess of truth and justice. That god of judgment's name was Anubis. So in the following Baytown Sun newspaper, December 6, 1985, at the very bottom of the front page, police answered the madman's riddle with the name Anubis, and then anxiously waited for another letter in response. Very quickly, the letter came, and detectives quickly opened it just to discover the writer of the letter was not happy, was angry, in fact, in bold letters it stated, "'Never again will I forgive a mistake.'" Police got the answer wrong. Act 3. It's December 1985. Baytown police are in a state of controlled panic. The killer of 11-year-old Mary Stiles was still out there taunting them with a series of letters with riddles for them to answer. The answers would not only lead to his identity but would also stop him from committing any future killings. The answer to the first riddle they got wrong. Luckily enough, though... He gave them another shot at getting it right. That's when my dad, Detective Paul Schaefer, was added to the case. He was tasked with researching the riddle and finding the correct answer. After digging around at the local library, he discovered that police were not far from the truth and were not even fully incorrect. Anubis was initially the first Egyptian god of judgment, but centuries later, he was replaced by another god. That god's name was Osiris so in the next issue of The Baytown Sun, they added Osiris at the bottom of the front page and waited for a response. Again, like clockwork, another letter came, and this time, fortunately, they did get the answer right. In this letter, he also gave them another riddle to solve. This is a god of the deep and dark, the god of all that moves with a swish, In the beginning, there was no land, but only a place ruled by his hand. The Romans worshipped him every day, even more so when they had to travel far away. Police, again, had until the next issue of the Baytown Sun to provide their answer. With every step they feared, the madman would grow restless and eventually end up taking another life. They knew they had to get this answer right. After conducting more research, they concluded that the answer to the riddle was the Roman god of the sea, Neptune. And they got it right. While police were deeply immersed in their game with the suspect, FBI profilers finished building their profile of the killer of Mary Stiles, and this is what they came up with. He lived andor worked near where the victim lived. He knew the victim well. He knew the layout of the apartment complex. The letters were more than likely dropped in a nearby mailbox. And this is the most shocking part of all. The killer was a youthful offender, possibly 15 or 16 years old, a high school student. How is that possible? This horrific act could have possibly been committed by another child. How heartbreaking, how frightening, how tragic. I went to school in Baytown, and the thought of one of my fellow students murdering anyone, especially a small child, is beyond comprehension. Could the FBI have gotten it wrong? Police didn't want to take any chances. They focused their investigation on that age group, on boys who lived in or around that apartment complex. They set up cameras to monitor the mailboxes of the apartment complex, and then they waited. and waited. And almost gave up until finally a lead. A young guy on a bicycle, wearing an oversized black leather jacket approached the mailbox and dropped in a letter. After he rode off, Baytown police acted quickly. With the United States Postal Service worker, they seized the envelope, noticing the writing on the outside right away and bagged the letter for evidence. An undercover police officer followed the young guy and kept a close eye on him. He lived in the same apartment complex as the Stiles family and was a sophomore at Sterling High School, my alma mater. While they processed the letter to see if it matched the others, they investigated further, putting all the evidence together. While doing that, they discovered the riddles, the threats, the madman we had all come to fear was indeed a 16-year-old kid. His name? was Joseph Lee Fordham. Police came to discover his 10-year-old stepsister was best friends with Mary Stiles. And after executing a search warrant for his house and school locker, they found cryptic letters he had started writing in books on mythology. But the most damning evidence was found in his bedroom. It was the murder weapon itself, the knife he had used to end the life of young Mary Stiles. They had enough to arrest Joseph Fordham, and when they interviewed him, he confessed to the crime straight away. He had no explanation, and he showed no remorse. No one, not even seasoned police veterans, could quite wrap their heads around the reality of this situation. During the trial, Joseph Fordham's psychological issues were called into question. A child psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Nympha Cavazos testified that Fordham had been hospitalized in 1984, a year prior to the killing. He was diagnosed as having both suicidal and homicidal tendencies and was manic-depressive, a.k.a. bipolar. She also stated he was removed early from the hospital, we assume by his parents, against the advice of psychiatrists. I get that we know more now about mental illness than we did all those years ago, but still... Why did his parents so carelessly remove such a troubled kid from a controlled facility and unleash him out into an unsuspecting world? Dr. Cavassos further stated that 16-year-old Joseph had a serious emotional disturbance and is subject to suddenly losing control and having outbursts of rage. He could be a danger to himself or others under specific conditions. What happened that Halloween night? What on earth could a sweet, innocent little girl provoke the young man to the point of committing a brutal homicide? What police assumed is that homicide was not the initial motive of Fordham, but it happened because he lost control of the situation. He never informed anyone, including police, what that situation was, and unless he confesses sometime in the near future, he will likely take it to his grave. Joseph Lee Fordham was eventually tried as an adult and was convicted by a jury of aggravated murder, a win for the prosecution and for the family of Mary Stiles. But where justice was lost was at his sentencing. The troubled youth was only sentenced to 25 years in prison for such a brutal crime, and if that's not bad enough, due to prison overpopulation in Texas, he was paroled early in 1994. In total, he spent only eight short years behind bars. So, on November 14th, 2021, Mary Stiles would have turned 48 years old. And again, like Carolyn Hahn, who knows what life she could have led, what great contributions she could have made to this world, what kids she could have mothered, the lives she could have saved, the happiness she could have given both to her family and to those yet to be born, we'll sadly never know. Joseph Lee Fordham is a free man now in his 50s. Who knows if he is reformed? Can someone who commits a murder like that at such a young age ever be? News has it that after his release, he continued to have several run-ins with the law. And in 1998, he committed a parole violation that put him behind bars for another six years. In 2014, Right before his 20 years of legal supervision was to end, he tried to commit suicide. When asked why, he claimed that his time behind bars for the crime he committed wasn't long enough. And we all couldn't agree more. Thanks for listening to Crude Axe, Murder in an Oil Town. My name is Jen Schaefer. I'm your host, writer and producer of this podcast. Amy and Russell Dunlap, a uh, daddy-daughter duo, are executive producers. Original music is by Two Star Symphony. You can hear them where you listen to your music and at www.twostarsymphony.wordpress.com and I'll see y'all next time.